Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime New England. What's up, everybody? Hello, welcome back to another episode. Thank you for joining us on this chilly, chilly day. I'm so, so happy to have you, as I'm sure Katie can share the same sentiment. Of course. We are always so thrilled to be here in this new, new season of year per usual in True Crime New England fashion. Our last episode was a pretty big, well-known case, at least throughout New England, to bring you guys back. And today's case is no different. Right. We're really just kind of hammering home with some really big cases. And honestly, we ended last year with some big cases. And now we're starting this year with some big cases. When will it end? My fingers are so tired. I've been typing and typing and my eyes have been looking and just kidding. It's been very fascinating. We've we've got a lot of good stuff lined up behind us and we've got some interesting cases lined in front of us. So you guys just, just stick around. Like I promise you we got some good content. We always talk about New Year's resolutions and, you know, everyone does at the new year. And I think one of mine is just bringing you guys good stories Lots of good, passionate conversation. And I think we already do that, but I think why not more? Yeah. And today is going to be, we're getting into it. Because this is a very interesting story in the fact that it does have two sides of it in a way that you could really easily fall on one side or the other at the end. Because luckily the story ends positively, but... For most of it, you're thinking like, okay, this is bad. Like, it could be really bad. It's so interesting because there's such a weird dynamic. So definitely stay with us. Listen. Think about the family dynamics and how maybe from an outside perspective what you guys would feel if you were in this situation. Because... Nobody really will understand it unless it's your home life. Right. It's hard to explain, but it's interesting. Yeah, definitely. And even doing the research, I was like, oh, shit, no way. Oh, but what about that? Oh, but you got to take that into account, too, as the parent. What about the other parent? Like, it was right. so just very back and forth. And even now I'm torn on how I feel about it. I, I do have an idea of my opinions. Right. But it's, it's just so interesting. Unlike anything we've covered before on the podcast. I think that's yes. safe to say. Yes. It's hard to pick a side in a way. Which you're not really, you don't really have to pick a side. But you in this story, it's like, who are you really leaning towards being like, quote unquote, correct? It's very complicated. But I encourage you guys to stick around because... I want to know what you think at the end of the story. We always do, but this one specifically. And without further ado, today we will be covering the, the abduction, abduction of Kimberly, Kimberly and Kelly Yates. Alrighty. Katie, would you mind starting us off with your sources, please? Of course. Thank you. I had quite a few. I had information from NBC News, The Province Journal, a really long, very good article. Yes. CBS News, Purpose Driven Lawyers, 
People.com, The Daily Mail, and CBC News. Nice. I had an article from the Boston Globe. That same very long article from the Providence Journal, which I love. NBC News, CBC News, and CBS News. All the acronyms. Now, to get into this story, we have to kind of go through the weaving fabrics of the beginning of the story. So I think of all the cases we cover, this one is really like background heavy. I have to tell you the story of Russell and Elaine to tell you the story of the abduction of Kimberly and Kelly. You know? And it'll all make sense. But I'm going to tell you guys this love story, essentially. And it'll all make sense. It will. But I'm going to lay it out for you right now. It's going to sound pretty great. It's going to sound pretty normal. Until it won't. Dun dun. It always goes that way, guys. It's more fun when you present it that way. So this story starts with the typical love connection of two people in Warwick, Rhode Island. Tiny little Warwick. Enter Russell Yates and Elaine Pigeon, both freshmen, both 14, both attending Veterans High School in Warwick in 1961, just yesterday. The two lived in tandem through their high school years, where they actually started going steady at 14. So young, so cute. Before they were even graduating high school, they had long declared their love and had shared with their families that they wanted to get married. They wanted to get married. It was so important to them, and their families could very much tell that they were clearly meant to be. It was very obvious. Russell's mom, Vivian Yates, always recalled that while she thought they were too young, she was also mighty proud. The pair had spent a lot of time squirreling away money so they could afford a home and every piece of furniture inside. They worked very hard. Not just Russell, you know, being the man at the time. Elaine, too. They were working hard. And they really were saving up their money. And wouldn't you know it, January 22nd, 1966, Russell and Elaine were married very shortly after they graduated high school. Which, as a sucker for love, I just love that. I just love that. They were high school sweethearts. And, you know, once you get to an age, like, in your 20s, and you're like, Wow, I wish I had a high school sweetheart. Or like, you're just sitting there like, I miss my, I'm past that. Like, it's, it's over. My opportunity for that is done. And it's fine. But you know, there's something about having a high school sweetheart that's just nice. Oh my gosh. I have hospice patients that are the spouse of their high school sweetheart. Oh. And they tell you these amazing stories like, it was 73 years ago on a cold day. Oh my god! It's so precious to I think that you can be with someone your, almost your entire life or like your entire adolescence into adulthood and then be in your gold. Like, it's really cute. That is really sweet. I love that. And for everyone around them, it seemed like, yes, these two sweethearts were going to be not only high school sweethearts, but like golden age sweethearts, you know, like that's what they were going to be. After the two had graduated high school, they both began to work at the place where both of their dads worked, which was called the Lisona Corporation, 
also in Warwick. So they were always in Warwick. That was like where they were. And they stayed there forever. And which is great. Love that. I'm so like, honestly, I never thought I would leave my hometown. And sometimes I'm still convinced I will end up back there. Like I used to joke that I was born at Exeter Hospital. I'm pretty sure I'll die there. Like I still think I will somehow. <laughs> I just think I will. But like, I love that. Like the sense of just home. And that's clearly where they were. They were in love forever. And Warwick was their home. Great. Literally everything in their lives they did together. Like, I mean, we're getting the same job. They're both their dads worked there. I love it. I love it. Less than a year into their so far wonderful married life, Russell got a letter. He was being sent to Vietnam. Right in the throes of Vietnam War, the draft. This was very much not his plan. He did not want to go to Vietnam. And I don't blame him, as we know now, it was fucking terrible. And because somehow Russell and Elaine were always connected literally in every aspect of their life, Russell was actually stationed, like, very, very close to his brother-in-law, Joseph Pigeon. So he was even in Vietnam, hundreds of thousands, like, so far away in a war zone. He was, like, neighbors with his brother-in-law. Like, it's, of course, of course. So his brother-in-law, Joseph, was the sergeant for the 101st Airborne. And the two men were actually able to see each other from time to time while they were overseas, which is not super con Like, you don't really see that very often. So it was pretty cool. Like, that was very neat and lucky for them. And I'm sure it helped them a lot because that's a... We all know, like, Vietnam was terrible. So to be able to have that connection and be able to see each other was probably a light in the dark times, you know? Unfortunately, one hot, muggy Vietnam day in August of 1968, Russell received the news that his brother-in-law had been killed in action. They both were to be relieved of their tours shortly, just as it was already. And unfortunately, he was killed. And I, I feel like that happens so often. Like, they're just about to retire or, you know, their tour is going to end and then they just they get killed. It's awful. Russell was obviously very sad about his brother-in-law passing. Um, he even received a letter from Joseph a few days later that was postmarked the day he died. Like he had sent it just before he had, was killed in action. So heartbreaking. And apparently Russell still has that letter to this day. I know. Oh, so sad. Oh, wow. I know. But in a weird twisted way, Joseph's death ended up being a good thing. Just a little. Because it actually allowed Russell's tour to be ended short. Like, he, it was cut short. And he actually got to escort Sergeant Joseph Pigeon's body home to America. So then he was done. And that was good. Because now he could be home with Elaine and be there to grieve with her family. And that's, you know, that's really wonderful. So when Russell returned home from Vietnam, Elaine obviously was like, I'm sad about my brother. I'm so glad you're home. Like, I'm, you know, great. And their marriage worked really well because... Russell was a carefree guy, and while he was married and very much loved his wife, he liked to have the life of, like, a bachelor, and Elaine let him. And that was okay. Like, I'm not saying he was going around, like, fucking bitches, but he was, like, driving fast cars and, you know, going to bars and having fun, and she didn't care. She just, she was working. She was actually in the workforce, and she just let him do his thing, and that was great. It worked for them. It she occasionally joined him in the fast cars and the bars. She sometimes did. And sometimes she was okay just not doing that. She just, their marriage worked. It just worked for them. And that's great. I love that for them. 
wonderful. Russell worked at Lisona Corporation, where they had worked after high school, their dads had worked at, for about one year after he returned from Vietnam. And then he briefly sold real estate before he started his own construction business. Elaine had been working at Old Stone Bank at this point, but she quickly switched over to Fleet National Bank in 1977. She taught herself how to use a computer, which at the time was a big deal. And it actually made her like very valuable in the job market and in her work itself, because I mean, nobody really knew how to use a computer. So she looked really good on paper, really good in person. She was excelling. It was great. And also Russell and Elaine's marriage, still great at this point. Still sweethearts, still loving each other. They've been married for over a decade now. Still going strong. They didn't have any kids. It was great. They loved everything. It was fun. In 1981, Russell purchased a kind of sketchy male pub on Warwick Avenue called Copperfields. This club sat above an auto body shop. Unfortunately, a year after purchasing the pub, a fire in the downstairs auto body shop completely ruined Coppersfield. So the whole thing had to be redone. Took time and money. But after nearly a year, it was rebuilt, revamped, had pool tables, had sports memorabilia, had trophies. Russell spent a lot of his time here, and that'll be kind of important later. It was nearly 16 years into their marriage when they decided that they wanted to have children. And you know what? Because they were high school sweethearts and they got married at like 18. They could do that because they were still young enough to have kids. Because at a certain point, you kind of like can't. Because the woman, the female body, here's a quick science lesson. The female body, after a certain age, doesn't do well with pregnancy. So when Russell and Elaine decided to have children, it was because Russell told Elaine he felt he was ready. He said, I'm done with this carefree lifestyle. Like I was driving these cars. I was living the life. And now I'm calm. I'm ready and I can handle it. And so in October of 1981, their first child was born, Kimberly Ann Yates. Little lady, little girl. Kimberly's first years of life were good. She was well-loved. She had a good time. Love it. It wasn't until her second birthday during a birthday party. Everyone was there. And, you know, Russell and Elaine were like, all of her cousins and family members, they're all really, like, older than her. She's going to grow up alone. Let's give her a sibling. So they did. They wanted, they tried for one more kiddo and they, not quite a year later, they ended up having another little baby. Kellyanne Yates was born. So they about like two and a half year age difference. Great. Love it. So now they had two little girls. Beautiful. It seemed like everything was going well in their marriage for a long time. They were married for over like 16 years now it was about 20 years at this point. Amazing. They were still so in love. We love this. It's great. Anyone who saw them in public said they were always holding hands. They were laughing. Beautiful. Ideal. Like, this is the gold right here. We love to see it. But for some reason, once the kids were born, tensions rose. They became more palpable and just couldn't be ignored. And I think what happened was Russell said, hey, baby, I'm ready. Like, let's have kids. I am not going to do all this crazy shit anymore. I can handle the responsibilities. I don't want that lifestyle anymore. And then he had the kids. And maybe he was like, "Mm, 
Maybe I miss it a, like a little. Like I miss it a little bit. And he liked to spend time. He worked at Copperfields, that bar, that pub that he owned. And it was fun. And he liked to be out late. And like he worked all hours and he would come home late closing up the pub. And it, it you know, it. I think a part of him always still really wanted that lifestyle. So he just was out late closing up the pub. And it kind of got hard for Lynn because she was still working. She was working. It was a lot taking care of two little babies. And he was out so late. And he just still wanted to drive a fast car occasionally or do whatever. And, you know, things just started to shift. And it started to get to the point where maybe their love and the sweetheart phase that they had been in for so long started to deteriorate and crumble in a way that literally no one thought that it would. Because it had been solid for so long. They'd built such a solid foundation. And now it was cracking. Just a little. Russell and Elaine, now both 38 years old, lived in Warwick, Rhode Island, of course. And like you talked about, Liz, the relationship is now pretty complicated. On the first weekend of August in 1985, Russell had stayed out all night on Friday. Which, I mean, he worked at that bar or the pub, Copperfields, closes late. Okay. On Saturday morning, Elaine went looking for him and found Russell, as well as another woman, on a boat he kept docked at Masthead Marina in Warwick. Mm. Elaine was pretty justifiably very upset Mm. and left, running up the dock to the car where Kimberly and Kelly were waiting. Mm -hmm. Elaine took the girls and went to her mother Mary's summer house on Point Judith, where she and Russell had originally planned to spend the day at the beach with the kids. Russell showed up about an hour later and he and Elaine kept things civil because they didn't really want to hash things out in front of Kimberly and Kelly and ruin the beach day. Sure. Like they had hyped this up too. Like we're going to go to grandma's, the beach house and have a beach day. And it's going to be so great. Yeah. So then when Russell didn't come home Mm. and she's like, um, hello, we have a beach day with the girls. Like parent daughter day or Mm -hmm. weekends, you know, you're shaping up to be a dad. This is what dads do. Right. Because they didn't, talk about it and Elaine didn't seem pissed in front of the girls Russell took this as a sign that she wasn't actually mad which is beyond me he was thinking you know maybe she let bygones be bygones water under the bridge like she has in the past yeah wrong Mm. he went to give her a hug as they were all getting into the car packing up and she pulled away from him yeah and he was like oh shit I'm surprised that how stung he was by this because what did he expect she actively caught him cheating on her this morning yeah she's not gonna want to hug him would you oh my god i she's better than me yeah i would have socked him right in the jaw yeah or holding it together in front of their daughters oh she is better than me Mm-hmm. someone would be bailing me out yeah yeah i would probably <laughs> They got the kids in the car, and once the kids were inside in the AC, you know, chilling, safe, out of earshot, (laughs) they stepped inside the summer home to talk. Things got pretty heated. Russell stormed out and drove off. He made it about a mile down the road when he pulled over and burst into tears. He was sobbing. He was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. He turned around, went back to the cottage, but things got heated again when he said he wanted to take Kimberly back to the house. 
Elaine was like, um, no, me and the girls are staying here at my mom's. Like, the girls are going to be here with me. Mm. Russell said that he was going to start getting the kids clothes anyway. Like, he was going to start gathering things. Like, I'm taking the kids. And Russell says that Elaine tried to kick him in the face. That part, I don't know how much I believe. Her first instinct is to kick him in the face? Did we miss the part about their history where she was, like, a black belt? Yeah, Yeah, what? I'm sorry, like, while he was over in Vietnam, was she, like, learning the the trade of karate? Yeah, like, like, was she, what? No way. Kick in the face. Yeah, no. I mean, she's only 38, but she's not, like, you're not really limber at 38. Yeah, I don't know. It's such a weird, like, that's not your first instinct is to be like, yeah, like, you're going to want to punch or like, no, it's just so weird. Like kicking the nuts, maybe, but like not the face. And he's a big, he is a big, tall man. No way. He's, yeah, no, sorry. It just does not make sense. He then says that she slapped him, quote, two or three times. And when he went to pull away, he hit his head on the door, like, pretty hard. Like, he mm. slammed his head. And then this is when he lost his temper, lost his shit, punched Elaine in the face. Mm. His wedding ring sliced into her forehead. Yeah. He rushed her to South County Hospital. And then when he's bringing her in, Elaine, who is five feet tall and roughly 107 pounds, and Russell who is 185 pounds with a barrel chest and a strong build. Yeah, he's huge. Like, he's built. Yeah, he's a big guy. The nurses are like, ooh, sir, why don't you come over here and fill out paperwork? Um, Ma'am, you come with me. Like, pulled her into a room and was like, are you safe? Mm-hmm. Let me give you some information for women's shelters. And Elaine was talking with a social worker, and she had made a comment that if I stay here in Rhode Island, Russell's going to find me. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the shelters that the social worker gave her, like pamphlets and information mm-hmm. for, were in Massachusetts. Yeah. In the three weeks that followed, things seemed to have settled down and get back to normal. At least that's how Russell was thinking. You know, he brought her to the hospital. She got medical treatment, got that nasty gash on her forehead cleaned up and probably stitched or bandaged. And, you know, three weeks that followed, things are pretty civil. Mm. On Monday, August 26th, 1985, Russell came home from work at around dinner time to eat with his family and help get the kiddos to bed. At around 8 o'clock, Elaine's mom came by and stayed for about 45 minutes. And after she left, Elaine kept bringing up finding Russell and the other woman on the boat. Like, it was very clear that this had been on her mind. She just wasn't sure, like, do I bring it up again? How do I bring it up again? You know, I don't want to bring it up in front of the girls, but Mm -hmm. he works late, so I don't really have a time to bring it up to him. Because when he comes home, it's super late. The girls are in bed. And Mm -hmm. it's just, I want to bring this up and talk about this more. I don't know when a good time is. So she brought it up. Like, we're talking about this. Mm -hmm. Russell said that he then went back to Copperfields, where he worked, to try to avoid another argument. Mm -hmm. And then he stayed at Copperfields and then got home at a little after two o'clock in the morning. He parked his car next to his wife's car in the driveway, per usual, Yeah. And went inside to check on her and the kids. Russell stated, quote, I went downstairs, got a soda, and made myself a sandwich. I put the TV on for a while. Normally, my wife would hear me come down and talk to me for a while, see how the night went. After a while, she still didn't come down. 
He then says that he called out to her, didn't receive a response, and went upstairs. The bed was empty, and so were the girls' beds, although he could tell that they had been recently slept in. Mm. Three-year-old Kimberly and ten-month-old Kelly, along with Elaine, were gone. Yeah. Kelly's bottle was still in her crib. Yeah. So not good. So, you know, he gets home. I find it so surprising, too, that he's like, comes home and he does his usual thing. And he's like, why isn't she coming down to talk to me? It's like, did you forget the fighting? Did you forget the cheating that you had done? Like, what What do you mean? What do you mean? Does he have short-term amnesia? Yeah, like, what? I just don't get it. You dumb-dumb. Like, sorry, I'm sorry. But, like, come on. No, for real. Have some emotional intelligence, dude. Yeah. Come on. So when he realized that Elaine was gone and that his babies were gone, he obviously was very confused and concerned because that's what? Like that's, it was like three in the morning, four in the morning at this point. So he frantically called his mother-in-law who did not answer. So he drove over there, which was, you know, a good move, I suppose. But he found that no one was home. The only person who was home was not a person. It was a dog. Her old English sheepdog who was barking. He then drove himself over to the beach house on Point Judith where that whole fight had kind of initially happened where he hit her and caused that injury on her forehead. He had the same problem. Nobody was home. Russell immediately drove back home and called the Warwick police reporting that his wife and children were missing. Russell claims that he was told he had to wait 24 hours before he could file missing person reports. I mean, maybe that's true. Maybe it was true back then. The police later came forward and said they have no record of this call. The only phone call they have from Yates was the next day on August 28th. Interesting. Very interesting. Russell didn't know this yet. But he was about to embark on a journey of missing his kids and wondering where they were for over 31 years. 31 years. That's three decades. Three plus one year. That's crazy. I st- When I read, I couldn't. I was reading on this so hard. Like, this was nuts. Oh, I was floored. Floored. I even did a double take. Like, I was a little dramatic. Like, I did a double take. I was, like, rubbing my eyes like they do in the cartoons. Like, is this for real? Yeah. Like, what? Crazy. It's nuts. And it does have a positive ending, so bear with us, guys. Like, it's it's just, it's captivating. Yes. And I think a lot of that is because we know it ends positively. Yeah. But, oh. Yeah. Oh, is right. When first talking to police, they obviously asked Russell... If there was any reason why Elaine may have taken the kids, why she may have left, he filled in the officer. He did. He said he was honest. And he said, you know, we were having marital problems. And the officer, a man named Stanley Butterworth, what a solid name. What a cop. I bet he had a big bushy mustache. I bet he did. And a big pot belly. You know? Just because he was a cop. With a name like that? Absolutely. But anyway... Stanley Butterworth made the conclusion that Elaine had left on her own volition and that there wasn't much that could be done. She was allowed to leave, you know? Additionally, Detective Butterworth heard from Elaine's mother, who said she had received two phone calls from Elaine since she had disappeared. 
According to Mrs. Pigeon, Elaine didn't disclose her location, but she said she was okay and that her babies were okay. Which meant Russell was shit out of luck at this point. Under Rhode Island state law, not a single crime had been committed by Elaine. At the time, under state statute, the police were simply unable to consider Kimberly and Kelly missing. This was because of the basic facts. They were with their mother. And as their mother, she had a legal right to them. And she had a legal right to take them wherever she wanted. And that was at, that was at this point in time, the Rhode Island law. Okay. The law at the time did have a kind of loophole, though. Elaine could be charged with child snatching, which was defined as, quote, intentionally removing or detaining a child with intent to deny another person's right to custody. This was actually a felony charge, which could land you up to two years in prison, which I thought felony charges usually were more than that. But hey, I don't know the law. Realistically, at this point, both parents had custody. And because custody wasn't granted to one or the other, the whole case just kind of faded away because Elaine had as much custody as Russell did. So it was like, uh, whatever. Right. And it was so interesting because at this time, there were quite a few people who believed otherwise and that Elaine should be charged with child abuse. Yeah. June Velocity, founder and head of the Society for Young Victims, a missing children's organization in Newport, stated, quote, People don't realize the psychological impact on the children. All children live a lie when they are abducted. They're told the other parent is dead or didn't want them anymore. Both are traumatic. Mm -hmm. June formed the agency in 1975 after an abduction and murder of five-year-old Jason Foreman in Rhode Island. She said that abducted children are usually given a new name, kept out of school, and are made to be afraid to play with other children in case they accidentally reveal who they really are. Mm. She stated, quote, they're living a life on the run. They're living like criminals. Yeah. It's a good point. So obviously police determine pretty quickly, you know, okay, so the children's mother mm. has her children. Okay, like, what do you want us to do? Like, try calling her again? I don't know. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. They're like, there's really not much we can do for you here, buddy. Yeah. So Russell was like, I'm starting my own investigation. Honestly, I have to give him some credit for that because he worked hard. Oh, and he did not rest. No. Over the years, he continued to ask state and Warwick police to continue to investigate the case. And he has asked the attorney general to look into criminal charges for Elaine. He's hired his own private detectives and lawyers, enlisted the help of missing children's organizations, and mailed over 12,000 letters to schools and pediatricians across New England to try and locate his children. A month after the disappearances, Russell was granted temporary custody to try and get police to issue a warrant, but this was not enough. Mm -hmm. I think it's so interesting, too, because... Russell was saying, even to police, he's like, have you talked to Elaine's mom? Have you talked to my mother-in-law? Mary, talk to Mary Pigeon. There's something going on with her. She knows. And he's, he said he's always felt that way. Like, Elaine's mom needs to know where she is. There's no way that she doesn't know where these girls are. Police questioned her the day that the disappearances were first reported. And then they followed her as part of their investigation. Like, they were following her around. The day after Russell told Mary that her daughter and granddaughter had vanished without a trace, she had gotten her hair done, went to a bakery, and then visited a friend. Wow, she seems absolutely just devastated. She is distraught. 
She cannot carry on. <laughs> like, what? Come on. Yeah, she's really a wreck. Yeah, she needs to, like, maybe work on her acting a little bit. Just maybe give it one more day before you go to the bakery. And the hair salon. Come on. I get if you can't cancel your appointment, it's like therapeutic, self-care. Cancellation fees are kind of high these days. Sure. Whatever. But come on. Come on. Retired Warwick Police Chief Don Croucher stated, quote, We're confident that the mother knew where she was. Police thought that Elaine was in Connecticut for a while after her disappearance and then went down to Florida. But that was just kind of their theory. Like, they really had no idea where she was. Yeah. Truly. So, in 1986, Russell actually ended up filing a million-dollar lawsuit against Mary Pigeon, Elaine's mom, with the exact claim, like you just said, that she knew where her daughter and her granddaughters were. It was quite the legal battle, but after some slight story changes, Mary eventually was actually thrown in jail for eight days for contempt of court. In the end, she maintained she didn't know a thing, and that was it. Like, it kind of just fizzled out from there. Nobody won a million dollars. She got out of jail. It was just like, womp womp. You know, it just kind of ended there. Kimberly and Kellyanne's abduction, along with Elaine's disappearance, was national news and was even featured on America's Most Wanted. Which we know in some cases has worked wonderfully, like the John List case. It worked, like, it has worked before, but this one unfortunately did not. And, interestingly enough, this case was even passed down through several generations of police recruiters for the state of Rhode Island. Generations. That blows my mind. And nothing happened for the longest time. Nothing. Then, suddenly, an anonymous tip came in. Just two days before Christmas, in 2016... 2016, an anonymous tip. One anonymous tip changed everything. To this day, it is hard to find out what that anonymous tip was or what prompted it, who it involved, literally anything about it. But what we do know is that it was used to track down in conjunction with Facebook, tax data, driver's license data, and ultimately it led to some answers. The tip directed police to Houston, Texas. Houston, Texas? Why, what's in Houston? Jesse and Fran Vaughn, a couple, oh. who lived in the same condo complex as Elaine. As Elaine? They were her neighbors, in fact. Wait, wait, wait. You mean Elaine? Elaine Yates? The one who went missing in 1985? Technically, but to Jesse and Fran, she was Liana Lynn Wahlberg. Huh. The couple said that she was very nice and that she was in charge of putting together the newsletter for their homeowners association. What's interesting is that the couple had no idea she had two daughters. Oh, Police didn't know when Elaine and the girls got to Houston, and they said that they couldn't comment on if the girls knew they had been taken. Mm. They did say that Elaine was very cooperative with police once they tracked her down all those years later, and that the name change order to change her name from Elaine Yates to 
Liana Lynn Wahlberg, was filed on August 26, 2009, 24 years to the day mm. that she disappeared with her children. Very bizarre. Kelly was now 32 years old. She was 10 months old. Mm. 10 months old. Yeah. And Kimberly was now 35 years old. And they, too, were both in the Houston area. They were living on their own. Yep. Because they're in their 30s now. Right. But they were in Houston, and they were all still very close. Yep. And they, too, were living under different names. Yep. But luckily, to everyone's relief, alive and well. In fact, they had families of their own. Russell had no idea he had grandchildren. He had no idea that he still had those two children. Right. To be quite frank. So, all of a sudden, it was like 31 years. Wow. This crazy, crazy miracle, really. Wow. What a crazy thing to happen. I would love to know more about the anonymous tip. Me too. Because police were looking everywhere. They were looking at bank statements, driver's licenses, passports, any kind of documentation. And she left behind nothing. She didn't leave behind a paper trail, which that might be a lot easier to do in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. But the 2000s, the late 2000s, 2016, Mm -hmm. no paper trail, no social media, no nothing. Wow. Very impressive. I will not lie to you. Like, teach, of course, the FBI because, ooh. Yeah. But that just goes to show, too, that she really did not want Russell to find her. Really, she didn't. So that brings up another point, too. A lot of her friends were not surprised that she left him Mm -hmm. after that whole incident. Right. Because he punched her in the face. Yeah, I mean, he cut her face with a ring. That's scary. Yeah. And really, who's to say? Who knows how, if that, who knows if that was the first time? That had happened, you know? Maybe that was the first time that he had hit her like that, but maybe there was verbal abuse. Maybe there was emotional abuse. Like, we really don't know how bad it was before she left. What we do know is that it wasn't the first time he had cheated on her, he later admitted. So maybe things were not as blissful as it had previously seemed. And she had been going through a lot more and she really escaped and didn't just run away, you know? Police officers from Texas and also Rhode Island arrested Elaine at her Houston home, extraditing her back to Rhode Island. When news broke about this decades-old abduction case being solved, those who knew her as Liana were shocked. Neighbors remember her as being quiet, normal, nice, just like you said. Elaine had even been remarried while she was on the lam. Elaine married a man named George Rapier in 2000, and they divorced in 2005. He later claimed that he always knew she had, quote, an abusive ex, and that she had left him due to that. However, she left out, you know, all the other stuff. He also expressed shock and concern because it turned out that their marriage had been bigamous, which is illegal, and he had no idea which he could obviously very much get in trouble and charged for that because, you know, it's a crime. I don't think he did, though, because clearly he had no fucking clue. But, like, in this article I read, he was like, um, my marriage was bigamy, and I did not know. 
It's like, this poor guy. Oh my god. This poor guy. I felt for him. <laughs> Elaine was actually released on a $50,000 personal recognizance shortly after being extradited back to Rhode Island. And in compliance with the ongoing investigation, she was forced to turn over her passport and was only allowed to return to Houston if she pinky promised to only stay at home and go to work. This didn't last long, however. And not for the reasons you guys may think. She didn't, like, do anything crazy. By the end of January, so not even two weeks after she was, like, found and arrested, the charges of child snatching against Elaine Yates were dropped. They were dropped. This was partially due to Russell. What? Say what now? Yeah. Russell actually met with the Rhode Island Attorney General and asked that the charges be dropped. When asked if he thought Elaine should be prosecuted, Russell said, that isn't going to help me, her, or anybody at this point. I just want to see my kids. Which, listen, he clearly did some things wrong in his life. There's no excuse for that. He punched her in the face. At the very least, we know that. At the very least, we know he cheated on her that day with a woman on a boat or whatever. And he did some other sleazy things, sure. But... When she left him and took their children, he tried very hard to find them. Very hard. And he never stopped. And so when three decades later, they kind of were found, he was so done. Didn't even care about Elaine. Just whatever. She can do whatever. Just I give me my kid. Like, tell me about my kids. You know, he just wanted to hear about. He wanted to talk to them. That's it which is so heartbreaking and heartwarming at the same time. Right. And it's so sad that that's what it took for that to be his wake up call. Mm -hmm. Like I'm a parent. Yeah. I'm a parent. I should not be sleeping with another woman on my boat and arriving to our beach hangout Mm -hmm. at my leisure when I had plans with my wife and children and then punch my wife and claim that she karate kicked me in the head or tried to. Right. I just, it's so crazy. And honestly, if he hadn't dropped those charges, there was a law change in 1988, like how we talked about initially when she did take the kids. Mm -hmm. There was nothing in Rhode Island law to say, yes, that's abduction. Yes, that's child snatching, et cetera, et cetera. They changed the law in 1988 and she could have faced up to 20 years in prison. Yeah. She really could have been in trouble. Yeah. But on the flip side too, she felt like she had to take her children and run. Yeah. She felt like she couldn't contact her family and friends. She moved states. We don't know how she got to Houston or when. Right. She had no paper trail. Police think that she was in Massachusetts, Florida, all over the place. Maybe she was bouncing around. Maybe. And it's so sad that she felt like she had to do that. Like no one would do that unless they were desperate and scared. So I would really like to know more of her story and her account and also where she's been at for the last decades, like the last three decades. Truly. I Same. Like, what has she been doing? I mean, we know she got married and she's a part of the homeowners association. Nobody likes those people, but I mean, that's just as someone who's looking at houses, but you know, you know how it goes. But it's crazy. It's just crazy. And there's so many different ways you can look at it because- She ran away from an abusive situation and just never came back. And so you're like, okay, she had to do what she had to do. 
But then at the end of the day, you're like, okay, 31 years, this guy didn't have his kids. Right. Like he's a parent too. Yeah. And then it also is traumatic for the girls to think of like, even just moving around frequently. That's really hard for kids. I can't imagine name changes. And I want to know what they know. If they even know that their names were Kimberly and Kelly, because they were so young, they might not know that. I would pay so much money to know what they were told, what they weren't told. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they saw pictures Mm -hmm. on the news or something. I'm sure they probably did. Oh my gosh. And because they're all adults and all the charges were dropped, after the charges were dropped, there's nothing in the media, not a single thing, because they're all adults. They have no reason to be taking this to the news. So we know nothing. We don't know if the kids ever contacted Russell. We don't know anything. And that's it. All we know is that everyone is alive and safe, which is honestly kind of incredible. That never happens. The girls were given Russell's contact information and he stated, quote, I've always been trying to find my children. Now, at least it's up to them to get in touch with me. And for his sake, for their sakes, I hope they do. I hope they did. And I hope they're all able to do whatever they have to to heal. Absolutely. It's a very complicated situation that none of us will ever understand. So whatever they need to do. Yeah, guys, that is the absolutely bonkers story of this crazy family dynamic that just started out as such a sweet love story that was crazy and beautiful and then just got so nuts and ended in such a weird way for so long. Ugh. You don't know how to feel for most of it. Right. You're like up, down, up, down, up, down. It's crazy. And we want to know what you think. So you can find us on Instagram at truecrimeny. All lowercase. Or you can send us an email at truecrimeny at gmail.com. We also have a website, truecrimene.com. You can go to our contact page, use our handy-dandy submission tool to send us your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts about this case, other cases we've covered, even though there genuinely is not another one that we've covered that is anything like this. This is whiplash for sure. Absolutely. Oh, we're making a note about this one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you scroll down a little further, you can look at our Bias a Coffee link. You can hit the button that says thank you and go to our Bias a Coffee page. And if you want to buy myself a coffee and Liz a non-coffee related beverageino, she's very into tea these days. We would love that. But seriously, you guys, you do not have to spend a cent on us. You do not have to do a single thing. If you want to do something nice that costs zero dollars and zero cents, if you are a Spotify listener, you could go over there to our page and leave us a rating. And if you are more of an Apple podcast kind of listener, you can go over there and leave us a star rating and or a written review. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.